0: Well, good morning. It's great to see all of you here. I think that after that worship, it would be less than good morning. You should be like, this was an awesome morning. Amen. Amen. Hey, it's good to see you guys. Those of you at home, we're glad you're joining with us and uh, excited that you'd be uh, hanging out with us today and we miss you and we hope you're doing well. Also outside, I'm glad you guys are enjoying the awesome weather out there and uh, don't get blown away. I don't think it's blowing anymore, but that's man, that was a crazy weekend of, of wind. So we're just glad you guys are here and we are finishing off this series called question and answers. And what we've been saying is every good question deserves a good answer and uh, had a lot of great questions and And uh, we've kind of had a lot of time for me to process and think about this section. And so real quick, uh, I don't see a problem here right now. But if you have a kiddo in the room and you don't want to have the talk before you're ready to have the talk, um, you might want to send them over to Children's Ministry. We're going to be having a conversation about, you know, that stuff. You know, the birds and the bees and all that fun things, all the euphemisms that we create because we're uncomfortable about it. My family is actually not uncomfortable about it. We talk about sex all the time. I mean, like probably every single day, some point it comes up amongst my teenagers. And I have two, I have three boys, so you know why it always comes up. But the point is that we are constantly in that conversation. And my family is not like uncomfortable about it because we've tried to turn it into a kind of a constant, regular, normal thing to discuss so that when my kids have questions, they don't run off to their dumb bozo friends who don't know anything. They can come talk to their parents who, who can teach them stuff. So, um, so, but it's, weird about our family because it's not like that in the church. I actually have met plenty of you who are scared to death to have that conversation with your family members, let alone have it come from the pulpit. And uh, there are churches all over the place that are scared to talk about sex. And it is an extremely uncomfortable subject for many of you as you are now wiggling and bouncing. And I see it. It's just kind of written all over. And uh, especially when it turns to the cultural conversation of sex, in which there is the entire questions that we have landed on that I've saved the best for last, or maybe I avoided it, but they're conversations on uh, LGBTQ things and, uh, and, and sex in marriage and out of marriage, all that kind of stuff. And so what we've done is lump these questions together in an attempt to kind of help, uh, kind of focus us in and have that conversation. And before I begin though, I wanna, I wanna admit something. Not only are we awkward about this, some of us have struggled really deeply with having this conversation so much that we, we've soft-pedaled the words of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus don't come out in the way that, uh, as, as he would express them. And so we've dodged kind of his hard, sharp points. And, uh, and so we've lied to people, unfortunately. Others of us, maybe you, you're too comfortable talking about these things, and you've just drawn too harsh of lines, and a point where you've offended and cut off people and done things in, in that you, you may not have intended, but the words have come across that way. And what I want to acknowledge right at the start, for everybody who's, who's watching, if you're here today, whether you are in the LGBT community, whether you're part of the Olive Branch community, wherever you find yourself, is that in every personal issue, and sex is a very personal issue, there lies a tension of love and truth. Amen? There is a difficulty to talk about the truthful things and do it in a manner that wants to be loving. And oftentimes we'll abandon one over the other. We will, we will shift off of love and, and hit truth hard, or we'll shift off of truth and we'll hit love hard. And, and I'm sorry, some of you guys have been to churches that, um, that I have to acknowledge, some of them have lied to, to you in the sense that they have ignored the teachings of Jesus and, and they have tried to teach the teachings of Jesus as being very overly inclusive and things like that while, while keeping his compassion and his love. And then there are churches that have, that have been horrible to some of you, who have told the truth about Jesus, but have done it in a proud, arrogant, and unbiblical way. Because Jesus calls us not only to a right set of beliefs, he calls us to a right set of actions and a right set of heart conditions, And you have to hold these in tension. And if we don't, we we wind up running afoul in some way. And my goal here today is to try to not run too far afoul of either direction. Um, But saying that, there is that tension of truth and that tension of love. And to begin, if you are part of, or you have someone who is part of, or watching and you're hearing this, that I just want to start off and just apologize for some of the things some churches in this world have said. Not all churches. Some churches get this well. But a lot of churches that I've I've heard over the years um, have just been cruel in some of the language use and in some of the ways to make you feel like you can't talk about this as a struggle. You can't bring out LGBT issues at all without being crushed. And um, I like to typically educate on the stage probably more than anything, but I want to talk to the heart for a minute for those of you who may know someone or be in that world and have felt that way. Um, I want you to understand that I'm, when I speak the truth, I'm not coming from an angle of, of condemnation because I understand what it feels like to wrestle deeply with sexual desires and things. Not homosexual desires. I haven't, don't have that, but I'm, I'm full-blooded and I've got my problems when it comes to sexual desire, when it comes to these things. I understand what it's like to have to wrestle and fight against what you long for. At the same time, I have to totally admit that I know what it's like to feel ostracized. I know what it's like to be rejected, called names, removed from groups. And, it's, and strangely, it's because I'm a pastor. I have, I, I have people on my street who don't like me just because I'm a pastor. And I haven't done anything to them. So I get it. And so I want you guys to hear that I'm not coming from a zone where I'm trying to make you feel like, oh my gosh, you hate me, all this stuff. And that's another church bashing on on whatever, the LGBT community. No, no, hold on. Before I begin, I just want to let everybody here know, in every community, everywhere that is listening, that God loves you more than you love yourself. He actually loves you more than you even know about yourself. And while that'll get fleshed out a little bit here because I believe that God's the one who made you and he knows exactly who you are and that's how he can love you better than you can love yourself, I wanna I wanna really dive into the fact that this doesn't remove the tension. This doesn't remove the the the, the situation in a church where if you are struggling with same-sex attraction or you are struggling with gender identity, you feel like you have to be quiet or you know someone who does that you can't express. I just want to tell you right at the beginning, right at the front, you can come talk to our staff. You can talk to me. You can, you can bring these things out because we want to show you our love. We want to care about you. We want to help where we can. And we don't, you don't need to hide in that sense. Now, setting all this up, reminding ourselves there's a tension of truth and love. What I'm going to bring to you guys is truth and love, because as Christians, we believe this is how you grow. Ephesians 4.15 says, rather speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We can't deny either side, the love or the truth. It both must be there. Amen. Okay. All right. You're like, I am uncomfortable. Awesome. Then let's go into the uncomfortable question. This is the question as it was written, as I received it, and it asked this: Does God accept LGBTQ plus? Is and how does God judge people? Yeah, you know, this has taken me a long time to kind of formulate how to answer the question. Not because I don't know the information, I could I could just come up here and unload the information on you. That's that's not a problem. But how to do it in a manner that is that I'm able to communicate the, the sense of both that truth and love. And, and I believe a great way to just start you with is that if, if you want to hear an excellent presentation on that, is to check out this book. It's it's by Rebecca McLaughlin um, called Confronting Christianity. It's a, it's 12 hard questions. It's written for people who are exploring Christianity. Or or if you just want to have a, a good starting space for answering really tough questions, she does an amazing job, especially in her chapter, Are, is Christ, are Christians Homophobic? And so I want you guys to take a, a look at that. If, if any of this is like, I didn't get what he was saying, or I need more information, or whatever, this is a great resource to do that. I'll have some other resources throughout, the, throughout this to point you guys to. But... That being said, the question again, and I'll just back up to it, is this. Does God accept the LGBTQ pluses? How does God judge people? We've answered how God judges people. He judges us by our sins according to what we do, right? We all are going to end up in judgment because of how we've lived our lives. Now, that being said, the, the first half is, is a kind of the what, tough question for me. It's like, what made it tough wasn't the question, it was how it was phrased, I've done a lot of premarital counseling. My wife and I, when we do premarital counseling, we always get into one topic, which is communication. And you all know, if you've been, if you've had any relationship, communication can be dangerous, right? It can be difficult because you come with different dictionaries. In fact, we had a, a friends that we were working through this problem with, and. Uh, Her husband would tell her, or her future husband would use the phrase, "Well, just calm down," and she would light up, like go crazy, more angry when he he said, "Calm down," because for him and his family, that was like how you just go, "Yeah, cool off, we're calm down, it's okay," you know, kind of chill out. And she was like, "Oh, don't you dare tell me to calm down," because that was in her, from her family of origin, that was like ripping on you that you are out of control and ridiculous. You need to calm down, and so it was loaded. We call it triggering, right? You've all heard of trigger phrases or trigger words, that kind of stuff. And if something triggers you, it's more about you than it is about the person speaking, just so you know. Just just to clarify this. If you have trigger words, go search those out and find out why. It's not the person's fault, it's your problem. Okay, let's let just, just clarify a pet peeve of mine real fast. Now, that understood, we needed to help him, because he was gonna be in a relationship with her, to not use that trigger word if he didn't want to get into a super big fight. We had to help define the word. What did it mean? What would it be a better phrase? And they landed on some better phrases and actually helped bring all of their arguments down in temperature enabled them because they they figured out, hey, we have one dictionary and it's our dictionary where we agreed upon the terms. Does that make sense? The problem is I have to agree upon the term. What does accept mean in this question? Because accept could mean on one half, it could just mean like, does, does God just, you know, Say, cool, you're good with that. You know, there's this idea of acceptance as in approval. It's this idea of acceptance as just receiving. Um, There's all these different concepts with acceptance. And and if you dig into the culture, you start asking, it's discussed with people. Really, it came down to me. It's like, what we're asking is, is, does God validate them? Is God affirming, validating the LGBT plus community in their, in their lifestyle, in their way? And that's the, does he justify them? When he looks at them, are they right in, what, in, in, in how they express themselves and look at themselves? Is he like, yes, you're good. And that's what I think the question really is getting at. And I believe then when we ask that question, then we need to answer it straight. But the answer is actually is found in Ephesians chapter two. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open Ephesians 2. We're going to be in Ephesians quite a bit in this section. So just having it open helps me uh, kind of help guide you through the logic of the text. Because I want you to see it comes from this this book of the Bible. Now, the answer is here in Ephesians chapter 2. So what is it? Does God validate or justify these people's lifestyle, the LGBTQ plus lifestyle? And the answer from the scripture is no. And I don't mean that harshly. But God doesn't endorse anybody's lifestyle except Jesus's, period. And that's critical to remember. Check out how we see this. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you, speaking to Christians living in this city called Ephesus in the ancient world, it's on the edge of Turkey, of, uh, of Turkey modern-day Turkey. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So these, this is their past life, how they used to live. Back then, they were dead to God. They had no response from him. God would be like, do something. They'd be like, I don't even, they don't hear him. They don't react. They are dead, spiritually dead. Because of their trespasses, willful sins, their ignorant sins, in which we all once walked. And he goes on to say, now, you once walked following the course of this world. That word course of this world is, is, is a racetrack. It's a, it's a way of life. Con- considered a concept like a lifestyle. Con- following your lifestyle. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom, now say this with me, we all once lived. One more time. We all once lived. This isn't about one particular group of lifestyles. This is about everybody's lifestyles. We all once lived. How? After the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us at some point in our lives, all of us have been people who sought to be justified and made right by our lifestyles the way we live, and we have to come to the conclusion that God doesn't justify anybody's lifestyle. He only justifies Jesus' lifestyle. And that's it. The only one. Everyone else is doomed. Me, you, we're a mess. We're dead following our passions, defining ourselves after our passions, whether it's sexual passions, whether it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, or whether it's queer, or whether it's asexual, whether it's heterosexual, whether it's you you name it. We also define ourselves by our body passions. You know, some of you guys are are, are gym rats, right? I mean, that's a body passion. I want to look good. I want to feel good. Bulimics, obese, trans, some of us define ourselves by our drug use. I'm a tweaker. I'm a stoner. We wear hats. Some of us define ourselves by our money desires. Whatever desire you place in the place of God becomes your desire that is going to guide your life and all those is your lifestyle and they lead you down courses after your passions and your flesh and passions of your body and the mindset of your body. And on all of these cases, God says, nope, sorry, can't endorse it. The only one that I can justify, the only one I can say is right is the life of Jesus. It's no wonder that in Romans, a different book, Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, there's our word, made right, validated by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see that? The only life that is validated is the life of Christ that he didn't leave to himself. He opened it up and he says, I'm going to give it as a gift that everyone, no matter who they are, what lifestyle they're in, how dead they're in sin or not, here, hey, guys, it's yours. Here's a gift. That gift is universal, wide open, offered to everyone, and it validates everybody's life, but only because it's the life of Christ that's validating us. And, and that's critical because when we ask this idea, does, does God validate these lifestyles? Again, you, these lifestyles again are only found in the world. Jesus didn't live these lifestyles. Jesus's lifestyle is the only lifestyle that ultimately God looks at and says that's mine. We say, "Well, that's not really what we mean." I get there's lifestyles, but we're talking about identities here. We're talking about people who identify by these by these uh, LGBTQ concepts, and again, also clarifying that these aren 't one thing we all know that that a, it 's a, a, a political set that 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 group right there pulls themselves together for political means they don 't actually have a same set of agreements there 's a whole bunch of divide and, and conversation within those groups but the, the bottom line is they all agree that they 're defining themselves by their internal identity, what they find inside whether it 's A feeling an emotion or direction. And when we see this, the situation, and I believe they would agree with that, that that's where you find out who your core identity is by looking in. Now, as Christians, we say identity isn't known from within. Your identity is known from without. You can go back to my Knowing You series and take a look at that. That God who makes us is the one who defines us. And so he's the one who identifies us. And even in that, when we take on an identity, no matter who we are, there's only one identity Jesus or God will accept, and that is the identity of who Jesus. You know I was going there, right? Think about it. The most important thing about the most important identifier to your life is your name, and there's only one name given under heaven by which we can be saved. Only one name that's been exalted to where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and that is Jesus Christ. It's no wonder then that if we find an identity that God's going to validate that he's going to love, it's not going to be found in anything but the name of Jesus, whether you're a Jesus follower, whether you call yourself a Christian, all of these terminologies, place yourself under the name and title of Jesus. And what we are claiming is I'm going to live like Jesus and take on his identity like Jesus because of what he thinks, I'm going to think what he does, I'm going to do where he goes, I'm going to go. I want to be like Jesus because that's the life. That God gave me as a gift so I would be validated and justified in his eyes. And That's the same for everybody. And you find this, there's tons of gifts in this. In fact, it's in, as so we continue in verse 4. Though we were dead in this trespass and sins. Though we were walking in these courses and in these ways. He says, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. He's not out to condemn us though we were under wrath. He's, he's merciful because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and he made us alive together with Christ. And so now with Christ in his identity, in his work, what do you receive? Guys, you receive all kinds of things. One, you got mercy. Number two, you got a great love. Number three, you got life because you were brought back from the dead. Number four, you were raised up with him and seated at the right hand. That means you got honor and glory and power in Christ. It goes on to say that you received immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. When you're in Jesus, you you get God's kindness, you get his mercy, you get his grace, you get his purpose. He goes on to say you become his workmanship where he's given you good works to do before you're even born to do them. I mean, he unloads the truck on you. He's so pleased with Jesus. And Jesus is so pleased to have you fall under him and his identity. And here's the beauty. It says, by grace you've been saved. Later we'll say it is not a, it is a gift. You don't earn it by works. Which we've always said, you'll hear it at churches and I say it a lot. You, that means you don't go clean up and make yourself right and get yourself all good and perfect and deal with all your all your identity issues and then come to Jesus. No, no, no. No, no, no. you you don't you, you come to Christ broken, messed up, jacked up in the deepest part of your soul. Amen. That's how I came. I didn't come all perfect, clean, and squeaky, because if I did, I sure messed it up since then. No, we come broken where we're at, and and he receives us, pulls us under his identity, but he doesn't leave us there. What we don't change before, he starts to change us. We transform. We begin to be conformed. We begin to be something else. Our identities shift. It ceases to be about these things. And it starts becoming about him and his life and how he thinks and what he does. Man, I want to get, I get myopic on Jesus because he's, he's wealthy, rich in all of his beauty, wonder, glory, knowledge, truth, character. It's powerful. And this is where Paul goes. In fact, if you have it open, I'll just give you a quick Curse review. So in chapter 2, you end at verse 10, where he says, You're his workmanship if you're in Jesus. He's going to use you. Then he goes into, and by the way, this isn't divided up. This is for all of humanity. It's not for the, the Jewish people and then the Gentiles. Nope, that's all been united under Jesus. And this is so cool because I got sent out to preach the gospel. That's chapter 3. So let's praise the Lord. That's the end of chapter 3. It's a big, long, like celebration of Jesus and his intelligence, wisdom, and glory. And he goes, Chapter 4. Therefore, we shouldn't split ourselves up as a church. We need to be unified because we have one spirit and we get these teachers. And these leaders and these wonderful people to train us and equip us so we can go out and do the work God made us for. That's the beginning of chapter four. And then he lands and he says, and that means you don't have to live like you used to live. That identity is going to change you. This is the start of verse 17 in chapter 4. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Don't, Don't go back to that old way. And if you do, you know, you it's it's callous, it's broken. That's but that is not how you learned Christ, he says assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. So put off that old identities. Put off that old course you were running. Put off that old desires from your flesh and those old desires from your mind. You set those aside, and now you allow yourself to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You'll get new desires, renewed desires, good desires, and you put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It changes you. And it takes time and it works over and it's not you who changes you. He changes you in relationship with him. He helps you. But it also means that you and I have to come to this place where we realize when Christ is telling us to let go of something, we got to let go of something. And this is where the, the rub really hits for every human being. Whether you're heterosexual, whether you're, um, in the gay community, whether you are in a situation with a political position or whether you've got yourself in a situation where you are a drug addict, all the identities drop. They all have to be released. Everything comes to this point where there are things that need to be let go. He said, well, that's Paul. That's not Jesus. Okay, well, Jesus made it worse. Let's put it in his words. And Jesus said to all that were listening, if anyone wants to come after me and follow me, okay, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And what we have here suddenly is this request of Jesus that we would die to ourselves. The world says, accept yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself. There's never more antithetical terms to our culture than these words by Jesus right now. And I'll be honest, it is the denial of myself that is the hardest part of my living in Christ. Anybody with me on that one? I love that you guys answered like that. Because whether you're struggling with same-sex attraction, whether you're struggling with heterosexual attractions, whether you're struggling with drugs or anything else, it's all the same. In so many ways, we have to come to Christ to be transformed. We need to deny ourselves and take up our crosses, and only Christ can do that in us. And so when it comes to sex, no matter what we talk about with sex, remember this. When it comes to sex, everyone must sacrifice their sexuality at God's altar. Everyone. It is not a special request to certain groups. Let me make it clear. You got to put off old things. You got to deny yourself. So lesbians need to deny yourself the desire to have sex with a woman. Now, note, I'm very specific about this. In gay men, you need to deny the the desire to have sex with men. This does not mean you cannot have a relationship with a woman or a man. You say, what? Wait, Greg, what are you talking about? Yeah, they're called friendships. They're called family. The last time I checked, you don't bring sex into the family or it gets really broken. And you don't bring sex into the friendships because it really destroys them. And sometimes what we're longing for in the depth of the emotion and the relationship has been destroyed. You can't attain it because it has to have sex now with it. Everything has to have sex. Why? It destroys the ability to have true intimate relationships. And what God is asking you to do is deny the desire. Now, same thing with bisexuals that you need to deny the desire to have sex with either. And the point is that, listen, listen, Just because you're a guy and you can say, dude, that guy's attractive. Or you're a girl and you can say, you know, that girl's really beautiful. That doesn't make you gay. Do you know that? I have to tell my kids this all the time. It has nothing to do with it. Did you know if you talk with a certain lift, that doesn't make you gay? Your hands, the way you hold them doesn't make you gay. Holding hands with another man or women holding hands doesn't make you gay. It may make you Italian. (laughs) Because that's their culture. What we have done is that the thing that makes someone struggling with homosexuality, lesbianism, bisexuality, is the desire to have sex with the same sex. right? Just a clarifying point. Very important clarifying point. Because that's what God's asking you to keep in check. The actions. And so he calls the heterosexuals. You are to deny yourself all sexual contact with everyone if you never get married. Period. I'm sorry, you, you don't get to have sex as a single person. And more people are choosing singleness, but they're not choosing the biblical route. If you're married, you don't get to have sex with anybody else except the one that you married, even if you don't like them. <laughs> and let's all be honest. Sometimes you don't like them. You stood at that altar, you love, and you got home 6 months, 8 months, 7 years later and you're like, "I'm not in love." But you're married. Most of this began when we pushed that way down a long time ago, and that has, we'll get to that in a minute. But the bottom line is, this is not a standard for only one group of people. This is a standard for everyone. Everyone must sacrifice something at the altar. And if we are saying, but you're making them lonely, you're consigning them to a life of loneliness, that they can't get married, if they can't get... No, time out. Marriage doesn't carry loneliness. Sex doesn't cover loneliness. What covers loneliness is good community and friendships and family that we're dissolving because we want to go get busy all the time. Where the church is supposed to be the family. Where we're supposed to be able to be honest with each other. What has happened in the churches is we can't be honest with each other. We're scared of talking about our sin. I am looking at the ugliest, most corrupt group of people in the world sitting in front of me, okay? Okay. And you have one talking to you. I am married to a horribly corrupt human being. And she's sitting here. And she's going, that's right. But they ain't met you. So, okay, I get it. Until we understand where we're at, we're going to think there's this us versus them stuff out there. That's not true. God doesn't accept any of this stuff. He only accepts Christ. And everyone, everyone must bring their sexuality to God's altar. That means if you're not following Jesus, this isn't, this isn't a conversation for you. I'm not going to hold you to following Christ's rule if you're not willing to take Christ's identity. And the beauty of taking Christ's identity is that I believe it's far worth more. It is the pearl of great prices, Danny said, the treasure that is found in the field we're sacrificing everything for. Those aren't really my words. I mean, Beckett Cook, who is a, um, a man who was a very popular, very well-known man in West uh, Hollywood. He, was, he, is, he, he would call himself a homosexual at the time, and still, but because he, he has those attractions. But one day at a coffee shop, runs into a, a group of Christians. And out of a humor, kind of joke with his, with his friend, they walk over and say, so you guys are Christians? Like, yeah, because they saw a Bible, and they're like, so what do you think homosexuality? And they go, we think it's a sin. And he's like... Ah, uh, what? and they engage and they start talking. He's like, you got to come check our church out. We'd love to have you here. It'd be awesome. Shows up, sits in the service. And they weren't talking about any of this kind of stuff. They are just talking about the Bible. He said, Christ met him in the seats and the glory and the beauty and the wonder of who he met was worth more than anything he'd ever imagined. And he, this guy would have fun at Tom Hanks' house. He knew the wonders of this world and the excitement of the glory. And he was like, it's worthless compared to Jesus. I have talked to sex addicts who know that exact thing. I have talked to drug addicts who know that exact thing. I have talked to people who have been divorced and broken and abused and all of them come to the same conclusions that there's nothing like Jesus. To heal the soul, to change your identity, and to lead you into deep relationship with God and others. But that belies a question. If we're all in the same boat, this is the second question that was asked. Why has homosexuality been made into such a big deal to the church? When pride, hate, vanity, idolatry, adultery, infidelity, constant lies and apathy are so much more prevalent within the church and are a much bigger problem than admitted. I think I just admitted it, but I, I want to make it clear that If if this is you, I am so sorry about the churches that you've been in. That's a horrific place to be. But I I understand. I've sat under some sermons and stuff where that has happened. And I hope I haven't preached some of those sermons, but I may have. And the bottom line is that historically, this just isn't the case. Homosexuality wasn't pinpointed out by Christians. It was already um, something that Judaism had considered outside of the bounds. Yahweh had called it out of bounds. And so the Christians inherited that. But when they came into it, they called people to Christ. And so you find texts like this in 1 Corinthians where it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't think anybody in here got out of that one. And such were some of you. I love that line. The foundations of the church are people of brokenness of all kinds. Who found their treasure in Christ, and so they were washed, and they were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. God didn't reject them in Christ. He validated them, He brought them in, He made us one. And those are the people we stand on who bring the church about through the ages. These are the people that make up the transformation and lead and remind us of a more satisfying way, the way of Jesus. Now, the church, unfortunately, did get overly focused, I'll be honest. It didn't start there. It started in the 1950s when no-fault divorce began. And the church stood up and said, no, 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 no no-fault divorce is not okay. We're not going to... We're not going to let the government say what divorce is and what divorce is. not no, the church has always declared there needs to be fault in a divorce situation. And there were plenty of rules and stuff, but no, that, that, that lost. And so soon marriage was kind of easily dissolved and the bounds of marriage began to kind of move around a lot. And people were getting married and getting divorced for all kinds of different reasons. Sexual promiscuity rose. And that was really what the church was talking about first in the 1960s and the 20s. And when they were talking about it, they were like, look, guys, this isn't how you're supposed to live your life. And they would be very clear. That's Ornication, you know, it's a very sharp pointed time period. And so when the AIDS crisis hit in the 1980s, that same sharp mentality was brought forward and just driven home. And so lots of scriptures and things were pointed out and hammered home, even to the point that some pastors would say that AIDS was a curse upon the homosexual community. Now, I don't know where they got that from in the text. That's a, that's a leap from an assumption. I would have rather we ran to the, AIDS, the people with AIDS and, and, and gone to the people and loved on them and cared about them and showed them the love of God because we're not afraid to die. But that's not what the church did. And, and, it, and look, the church is always a reflection of its culture. You know that, right? Because we are all part of the culture. And we're all sinners broken who need Jesus. Jesus. And so we all come in with our broken, sinful, dumb ideas that we got from life. They show up in the church. If you find a perfect church that only thinks like Jesus, run. You ain't going to be a part of it because you're going to mess it up, right? That's the point. And the bottom line is, yes, the church... We did some things wrong. We overfocused. We did and we we situated the sin as some sin apart from all these other sins. That's not the case. Guys, in our churches now, people sit and struggle with same-sex attraction, with gender dysphoria, and they don't feel like they can talk about it because they think that they have a sin that's greater than all the others. And yet we forget that no temptation is overtaken you that is not common to man. It's not odd. It's not a different category. It's temptation. Just like all your temptation is temptation. And so in some ways, he's absolutely right, or she's absolutely right. Whoever wrote this, yeah, the church can get overly focused. Now, I love to hammer on pride and and vanity and all that kind of stuff because, you know, typically pastors hammer on the things that they they struggle with. And I struggle with pride and vanity. I'm just kidding. They... uh, um, (laughs) No, but it is true. You know, hammering on lust, hammering on these kinds of things is indeed real because we should be talking about all sin. And if you're coming here because you got into the belief that somehow we were the moral betters because we lived a moral life compared to the immoral people out there, then guess what? You're as bad as the immoral people because Jesus doesn't accept a moral life as much as he doesn't accept an immoral life. He accepts his life. Be as moral as you can. You are not acceptable before God. Be as immoral as you can and you are not going to be acceptable before God. The only way to be valued before God is in the life of Jesus Christ and receiving his gift. That's it. And if we continue in a moralistic concept, it will be in us versus them and we will divide off sins and those will be worse than others. That's never been the case in Christianity. We are all doomed if we didn't have Jesus. am Am I making this clear for a minute? Because... Otherwise, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble because I don't have an out for my sins in my life. Now, I think we weren't careful in our desire to 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 save the culture and our desire to stay in the powerful position. all these There's a lot of cultural analysis that's gone into the, the situation in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s and all that. We're making our own mistakes now. But, but here's the thing. I love that Jesus constantly reforms us by his word, constantly challenges us to, to, to go back. And so a challenge of, to me and to this, to this generation, I believe, it comes in a parable that I think we all re- might remember. He said he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, I want you to hear me. If you're part of the LGBTQ community plus community and you're endorsing them and you think you've got the moral high road and you've got all figured out and you think we're crazy and mean and cruel, this is for you. You think you're righteous. You're going to treat the church with contempt. I've met it. For all you in this room who think that you're going to be the moral betters of all the other people in the world because you come to church every Sunday and you give a tithe and you're going to come in here and do these kinds of things. You're going to sing worship songs and you're going to be all celebratory about Jesus and da-da-da-da-da and you got wet one time way back in the day after you walked the Nile. This is for you. And for me. For every time I've been proud and condemned... In a contemptible way, someone, because I forgot the parable, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, O oh God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even a tax collector, Republicans, Democrats, you name it. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all I get. I serve in the nursery. I wipe babies' bottoms, all for Jesus. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down, to, speaking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified, house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Can we return to calling what God says is sin, as sin, no matter what sin it is? That's where we need to get back to. And it breaks my heart to have heard a story recently about some of our small groups, or one of our small groups. And I've kind of seen this before. They were sitting in their group, and one guy just got bold. He's like, I think we should confess our sins. And he straight up just went, I struggle with pornography. Where are you guys at? Five minutes later, one guy goes, thanks for saying that. I kind of do too. Silence, silence, silence. Moving on. Guys, if we cannot get to the place where our brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attraction, with gender identity issues, the people who have gone through abuse, those of you who struggle with pornography and lust, those of you who have an ho- awful marriage and you're wrestling with the fact that the, your coworker is more attractive than you, you want him or her to be, that you are wrestling with the fact that you can't stop lying or that you are smuggling money that you know you shouldn't be using or that you are walking around condemning people in your soul because you think that you're all that in the bag of chips. If we can't say these kinds of things, in the safest community where we already know we're a wreck, how can we be a church? How? People come into the office all the time. Like, I got something. I got to confess. I'm like, lay it on me. You're going to be so ashamed. No, you're not. I already know you're a mess. You sure what I did? Ready? Let's go. (laughs) To assume that we do not sin, to assume that we are not struggling, is to close the door on the opportunity for people to actually get help and be prayed for. Guys, I want to be a church where whatever you struggle with, whatever you need to confess, can be confessed without shame. I'm not saying there's not guilt. I'm not saying there's not repentance. I'm saying there's not shame. So that we can be free to actually pray for each other, lift up each other, encourage one another, enable each other to walk in Christ. I think we did that. You could share with somebody in this world, I got a place where they know my junk and they still love me. I know a place where they tell me the truth because they love me. I know a place where you can't get away from somebody wanting to see you grow and transform and develop into a greater person. Man, this church, this place you need to come. We are a community. We don't let sex get involved. We get to know each other. We're friends. I got girls who are friends and guys who are friends, and we are just filled to the brim with relationships, and we just don't zip out and zip away when we're done with church. Man, we are people who know one another and know that our God knows us because you're God knows the darkness in your soul and He loves you. How much more should we love each other? And this is what my call is in this. It's like, let, let's let it wake us up because we need to be a people who understand our sins so desperately that some of you know you got out of the car and hit it when you walked into the door. You sinned in service, standing there looking at the worship, judging everybody else, worshiping, going, show off. Okay, great some of you were showing off, check me out, Jesus. And he's like, okay, we are a wreck. Are we admitted we are a wreck? Can we please? I'm going to hammer it until we wake up because, my friends, there is no transforming a culture desperate for relationships if we don't break through our own scaly problems and be open. Uh. All right, Greg. How do you guide your children on the faithful path with friends, etc. With so many issues like LGBT stuff, etc. Today, I, w- I want them to be kind and accepting, but also follow Christ. It sounds contradictory to them. This was a, is a good question. And my first my first thought when I saw it was like I, I wouldn't use the word accept. I would use the word love. Um, I would rather your children love their friends and care for their friends, um, than. Quote unquote, just accept. There's a lot of people who can accept us but don't love us. Love cares, monitors, and, and goes even when somebody else is sinning, right? You love your, if you're married, I hope you love your spouse, if you love your friends, I hope you're still sticking with them even when they sin. Now, again, I, want you, I think we should teach our children that in these issues lies a tension between truth and love. There's tension. And that's not easy. And so let's admit it. First of all, let's teach them to become more concerned about the sin in them than the sin in others. Right? Sin ain't going to trickle into your kids, folks. It's already inside. It's just trying to come out. It's not going to find its way in from an exterior surface. It's sitting inside looking for an excuse to come out. And so when we remember to teach our children that the sin is inside already, then we're going to help them be more concerned about the sin of their souls and their walking with Jesus as they are than what everybody else is doing. And we need to get, help our kids see that. Second, we need to help them learn to treat others as they want to be treated. That's what Jesus told us. Whatever you wish others would do to you, so do also to them. You want, to be, you want to come over the house, invite him over the house, just engage. My point is basically live a more attractive life in Jesus. The most powerful life is a life attractive in Christ. It, long, it makes people long for the relationship, long for the purity, long for something in there. They don't want judgmental people. They want, to, they want somebody like Jesus. Jesus had literally drunkards and prostitutes and people all around him because they wanted to be with him. Isn't that the magnetic life? You are a light on the hill, not a ruler that draws lines. And we want to be attractive, a light that draws people in because we want them to know Christ, receive Christ, because the only life that gets accepted is Christ's. And then we want to see that shine. So I advise, as a parent, if this is your thought, first, you be the strong influence. Have your kid invite them to your house. You show them what it's like to love someone Who lives in sin, or is different than you, or is struggling, or you name it. You be the example, and admit that it's hard. Admit that it's hard. Like, if you have a friend who's super abusive, and angry, and roaming around yelling and cussing, but he's really nice to you, how would you approach that? You have somebody who is knowingly lying to all kinds of people, but he doesn't lie to you. He tells you the truth. How would you approach that? Remember uh, a basic adage that's really good, and I used to teach this in youth ministry: is they don't care what you know until they know that you care. How do we help each other have relationships so that one day, when you can speak truth, they know it comes from love? So maybe it's not, "Hey, come to church." Maybe it's, "Hey, come to my house. Let's go to the movies." And then, as you build the relationship, it grows into, "Hey." What's this in your life? Because what's that in your life? And suddenly, life begins to share. It's, it's, it's a difficult situation, but I advise you, check this book out. It's called Messy Grace by Caleb Kaltenbach. He has a powerful testimony. He was raised uh, by two lesbians, and his father was a homosexual. He didn't know that until later in life. And uh, he had to, this is his story of coming out as a Christian in his home and then a pastor. And how he has a single-minded love for people in this community because he's been to the pride parades. He had people, he had Christian churches throw stuff on him. He, he knows both sides, and he loves Jesus. It's an excellent, excellent book if you're looking for how to balance that grace and truth. I think he has another one just came out called Messy Truth, but I'll look into it first. So, next question. Let's let's move off, move on into other sticky issues. There are a few couples that I know who live together and have never been married and say they are Christians. One couple who lived together over 20 years. Is there a point where God considers them married? What is marriage in God's eyes? Now, that is a great example that everyone has to bring their sexuality to the altar. Because Jesus is the one who defines marriage, not humanity. And Jesus did define marriage once. He was asked about divorce. And they were like, we want divorce. We can do that. He's like, let's start with marriage. And immediately, Jesus goes, here's the definition. Number one, it's created by God. It's not invented by man. Man acknowledges it. God made it. Number two, it came from the beginning, and it was for male and female. Number three, it is therefore that man shall leave his father. It's a community thing. Where you do it in a community. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. It involves sex. And the two shall become one flesh. It should only be two people. And he actually adds the word to from the Septuagint into this text because he's arguing at the same time, oh, and all the polygamists are wrong. Jesus very clearly here defines marriage as monogamous and not polygamous, not polyamorous, not any other kind of form, and not open. Two, one flesh, there are no longer two but one flesh, and therefore God has joined them, man shall not separate. This is Jesus' definition of marriage. And what Jesus then does is then he goes into a whole conversation about this, this stuff with divorce. Now, my point here is to bring this out because Jesus it is, is, is understands this is a covenant. And a covenant is love made legal, okay? Literally. You are saying, I'm going to have the backing of the government or I'm the backing of an authority behind my covenant. And so I'm going to declare it to the community. I'm going to declare it to God. And I'm going to declare it legally. And that makes that love Really, really tough. That's a covenant love. And that's what marriage was considered. Now, the problem I find is that people want to say, well, we're married before God. We're married in God's eyes. We're committed to each other. I say, well, that's nice. Then do what God asks us to do. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. What's interesting is there's no known government in the history of humanity that I know of that didn't endorse marriage and have a legal mode for it, especially in the Roman world. And what goes on here is suddenly this reality that if you're going to say it's under God, why not just make it official then? Well, why not just, you know, knock on my door, bring a little license, have a witness, and boom, you're married. You don't need to do an extravagant, ah, all that stuff, no, 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 no. Yeah, I've gotten a little out of control in my own mind. But anyway, the, I think that what we want to do, though, is if you're going to honor God, honor the whole of his word. And if you're living together and you're sleeping together and you're not married yet, you're, not, you're in sin and you need to sacrifice that sexuality at the altar of God, take on his identity. This is his thinking. Get married publicly. Also, if you don't want to, then stop using marriage as a shield and be honest. That you're not married, you're sleeping together. It's open, it's whatever. Why would I say that? Because Jesus is very serious about using marriage as a shield for our sexual desires. In fact, he goes on to say this after he's described all the marriage in a a like fashion in the book of Luke. He says, look, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. you're like, Greg, what does that have to do with anything? This is actually in a section where he's talking to the Pharisees and he's making decisions about their debates. All these debates. There were two schools, Hillel and Shammai, and one was strict and one was loose. And one said, you can, from Deuteronomy, we can divorce a pe- women for anything. Burn the toast, you're gone. You look ugly this morning, you're gone. You asked me if you look nice in that tunic, you're gone. You know, all that stuff. The other one said, No. Only in the cases of adultery, sexual immorality, then you can do it. And the point that Jesus makes, like, I'm not for any divorce. I want you guys, if you're married, to stick it out the whole time. I want you to make it there all the way through. But if your heart is hardened and it turns into abuse and it turns into this other, yeah, that's fine. God allows it. He doesn't. He doesn't say to do it, but he allows it. Now, everyone who divorces his wife from the, and this is how they would have heard this. Just like we would ask, can an 18 year old drink? Right? You all know I'm talking about alcohol. Nobody else would know that if they didn't live in our culture and I'd written it down 3000 years later. They're like, do 18, of course they need water. You know, it's like, no, (laughs) the same thing is here. Everyone who divorces for any reason at all, that's how they would have heard it. His wife and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is not for no fault divorce. He's saying what you're doing is a sham. It's a sham divorce. You're trying to go have sex with someone else because you're tired of your wife. Don't use marriage and divorce as an excuse to have an affair. That's what Jesus is saying. And every time we try to use the word marriage and stuff in a way that is not how Jesus uses it, it violates what Jesus is getting at here. And I want to encourage you guys, get married. If you're not married, get married. Get married. If you're living that long, why not? There's no common-law marriage in California. You have to make it official. And so I would encourage you to. Now, finally, this was the last question with sex involved. What are the rules about sex post-divorce? And this is the answer. Same rules that applied about sex pre-marriage. Done. Right? Rules don't change. Even if I have sex with the person I was married to before, after we got divorced, no, that's not okay. You're divorced. Your marriage doesn't exist. The covenant's over. You don't get to go have sex with them now that you're divorced. That doesn't work. Get married. Now, the point is, what are the rules about sex post divorce? Is that it's the same as free marriage. And so I want to encourage you to remember that these are not easy things to handle. And I'm not trying to be mean. But what I am trying to tell you is that we have to lay all of our sexuality, no matter where we're at, at the foot of the cross. At God's altar saying, this is yours. I want to be like you, Christ. You're worth far more. And so when we get there, I want to, I want to just kind of draw in some conclusions. First of all, I believe that in this, all this conversation, it reveals one thing to me, that we need to put sex back in its right place. Sex is not the end-all, be-all of a relationship. It's not. It's not even really that important except in a very tight box because when it's let out of that box, it actually dissolves all these other relationships. It becomes abusive and destructive. So God had it very tightly knit in one location. And yes, it seems so limiting and restrictive. It's because we've done something wrong with relationships if we think you're going to be lonely for the rest of your life because you can't get married and have sex, again, like I said, we've got the wrong thought about sex. Sex doesn't make you less lonely. There are lots of people having sex all over the place who are feeling awfully lonely right now. It's a relationship of friendship and family and community that creates the sense of belonging and destroys loneliness. And that means we need to do something else. We need to get family... We need to, we need to, re- to return... To the church being the loving and truthful family and get that off of the back of every marriage. What, what, Greg? We put too much weight on marriage. There are some of you who your only intimate person in your life is your spouse, and when that goes sour, you're alone. Where are your friends? Where are your other family members? You put too much on it. You need more than just your spouse for intimacy. You need more than that because the marriage was not designed for to be your only intimate relationship. You have the church that's supposed to be a family. We have a father God, we're brothers and sisters. We need to return to being committed to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and stop putting all the weight on marriage because now none of our single brothers and sisters have anywhere to go and when we've done this one shift being too overly concerned I believe we need to be concerned about marriage don't get me wrong but we've tacked too far that if Jesus who could live a fulfilled life as a single man with very deep relationships all around him creates a model that we should begin to re-examine because it was creating a family called the church. And in all of that, all these issues begin to change because we open our hearts up in confession. We don't just run off to the next place. and We take the opportunity to love one another as Christ loved us. I want to pray for you guys. I know this has been one of those like Greg beat me up this morning. Um, I beat myself up all week, so I just thought I'd share the favor. Um, But no, to be quite honest, if you are someone who is wrestling through any of the issues in sexuality, any of the issues in in the body issues of our culture, we want to let you know that this is a place that you can come and you can talk to staff, you can talk to people. We're not here to condemn, we want to love and help. We believe we have found a treasure greater than anything any, of that, any desire could ever give you. And we want to help you get to know that one. Otherwise, I just want to pray over all of those. Would you join with me? God, Father, it's amazing we get to call you that. But you are our Father because, Jesus, you have allowed us to be in your identity and walk in your life. Help us to do that. Thank you that we are brothers and sisters because you are the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Thank you for making us new. Would you please now help us to be a community that is a vibrant, living, glowing place of family relationships of all kinds. Would you just bless this time we have together as we now go from the teaching into our time of fellowship. We pray you'd be exalted in it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, Danny. Hey. Danny's, uh, Danny's going to be up here for a second uh, with me because we've got a bit of an announcement. Um, and we're just asking you guys to keep this in mind over the next uh, 24 hours or so. Um, many of you knew Skip Mata. He was a, the president of our elder team for many years. And he uh, phoned me yesterday and um, he, he let me know that Linda, his wife is they 're going to be taking her off of life support in the next day or so um, we 're just asking since we are we 've been his family he lives in arizona been his family for so many years that we would pray for him please be pr- there may still be time for a miracle that 's what we'd love to see with Linda. Uh, they have poured into more people than I can imagine, and um, we just love them so much we need to let you guys know and so we can be praying as a church together so just application of community right here so um Danny, I asked you if you'd do that for me.
1: Lord, uh, with a heavy heart, we come before you, um, but a thankful heart too, Lord, knowing that uh, you're in control. Lord, uh, we know Linda and Skip have been a part of this church for many years, and and as Greg said, poured into many people through counseling and through leadership and just through all the things that they did. Lord, we uh, just want to lift up their family right now. Uh, we don't know the situation. We don't know exactly where she is right now. We don't know if she's still here or she's with you. We do pray, God, for that miracle. Uh, if it's possible, Lord, if you want to heal those lungs so that she can breathe and, and be able to, to recover, Lord, that that's the case. But if not, uh, we just ask for, for just uh, your glowing, loving arms around that family right now with Skip and his daughter and, and those that are around them. Thank you that they have a local church there that loves them and is caring for them, we ask, Lord, that we would do whatever we can from this perspective, from this side, that we can help him in any way, shape, or form. And we just thank you, God, um, for the ability to come before you and lay our hearts before you and talk to you about these things where there's struggles and, and hurts. And Lord, we know he's hurting right now, God. We know that he's struggling. And Lord, we just want to lift him to you. We give this all to you. We praise you. We thank you. You're in control. And we know, God. That you've got the right decision to make. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks. I only have one quick announcement for you before we take off here, and that is you guys uh, probably received one of these when you walked in. If not, they're right there. Uh, go to Connection Central. Speaking of community, uh, right now we're doing sign-ups for small groups, so if you're not in a small group right now and you really want to connect with those around you and get connected into a group where you have that, that fellowship that we're talking about in this message, then please go out to the courtyard and do that. And secondly, we have our Next Step classes. I don't know if you guys are familiar with these, but we have three classes right now that's Love, Live, and Share Christ, so just a way to grow in your relationship with God. And they're held right here at the church. They're done through one of the services, and there's also information out there. You'll see them out there in the courtyard. Other than that, uh, we just love you guys. We, we are so happy you're here. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we just ask that you'd come back next week, and let me bless you. In Jesus' name, Lord, we just thank you for this, this team, this family of ours here, and we ask that you would just lift them up, protect them, keep them safe, and allow them to, to just meditate on what you've said today, because it's all about your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. See you guys next week. God bless.